Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, folks, wherever the heck you are. It's me, the Grill Economist, coming to you live with my main man, CJ, working the airwaves, making sure that this broadcast is coming out spiffy and clean. And we have with us the man who needs no introduction. If you don't know who he is right now, you've been living under a rock somewhere in exceptional stand. And it's Matthew Errett. You can find his work over at thecanadianpatriot.com, canadianpatriot.com as well as the Rising Tide Foundation. And please, 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 you need to. If you haven't done this already, then you're a fool of all fools. Go to his Substack, Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Get yourself a very good geopolitical, geostrategic education from the man himself, Matthew Errett. And with that all being said, Matthew, CJ, gentlemen, what is going on? Hey, 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 how's it going, V? Hey, CJ. Uh, thank you for that. I, one thing, if people go to CanadianPatriot.com, they will not find my website. It's got to be .org. I, it's one of these oh, like, .org, obscure sorry. things. But uh, anyway, yeah, it'll work. Um, I'm good. It's been a busy week. Very, very busy, hectic week. So uh, yeah, I guess we'll have a lot to uh, to go over. There's a few things I wanted to talk about, and I figured we could talk about some some current events a little bit. Um and then jump into some some deeper dynamics of history that give us a better insight into the causality and the solutions to a lot of the problems that are are facing the world right now. Um, obviously, oil has become a big thing, right? And I know you guys did a, a had a good discussion yesterday on the uh, some elements of this. <clears throat> I mean. Uh, the Middle East is flaring up again. Every time that happens, uh, we know that there's all sorts of hectic activity in the markets, um, you know, the petrodollar and everything else. But also, um, we're in a bit of a different situation from past Middle East conflict because now we're at the actual breaking point of the the entire transatlantic system. Am I am I on? Yeah. You're here. Your cam just died. Oh, that's okay. All right. Not a big deal. Okay. Uh, let me see if maybe I can fix it quickly. Whatever. Not a big deal. So, um, <clears throat> so on, on so many levels right now, right, we have the breakdown of the system. We've got the system showing all of its self-contradictions on so many levels. Um, you know, we're sitting on the biggest derivatives time bomb in history. Everything is, is, is really, really up in, up in the air. We're being told that there is uh, progress happening on the markets, but at the same time, there is a complete breakdown of the physical economy. People are, they're, they're, they're despairing for the future. I personally don't know a single person who's died of COVID directly, who's been under 80 um, without comorbidities. But I do know several people who have committed suicide and whose businesses and livelihoods have been totally shut down. That I do know. Yep. Yep. Um, so you could say COVID is a killer in that sense. 
Um, but really the oil thing is something I wanted to unpack yet a little bit because, you know, we have on the one hand, um, uh, <laughs> this weird ransomware fake inside job attack on, on the U S uh, you know, th this, this system that provides something like 45% of the East coast, uh, oil and natural, I don't know if it's natural gas or if it's just oil, uh, that's been apparent, you know, it's kind of shut down and. Pete Buttigieg is coming out saying, yeah, that's why we need a Green New Deal. And that's why we yeah. should just approve the uh, $2 trillion green energy infrastructure package. Well, why? all bicycles to work. What's yeah, on? exactly. Pete Booty, Juice. <laughs> Pete Booty Juice is out there doing his thing, man. <laughs> no, it's completely economically incompetent. And I mean, the logic is, yeah, if we, did, if we had uh, solar panels and windmills everywhere, then there couldn't be a Russian hack on, uh, on uh, pipelines and, and oil grids. Um, yeah, sure. But you couldn't sustain your, your industry either. You couldn't sustain your civilization either. If you had those windmills and solar panels and no fossil fuel. So that's a complete idiotic fraud, but that's, what's being said there. Um, Nord Stream two, there's a, the, the fight continues, right? They, they've made an announcement that they're going to get the thing done by September of this year, but you don't really know. Um, the, the green party of, have, of, uh, Germany has said that they're completely in opposition and could easily cancel it. We're being, you know, we're being fed all sorts of propaganda that these things could be taken. Uh, you know, we're, we're basically being told that the population doesn't want this. <laughs> they don't want Russian gas. And so there's like these surveys being fed in the mass media to Europeans saying that, no, this is undemocratic <laughs> to finalize this pipeline, despite the fact that it's obviously in everybody's interest to have access to energy and to be able to pay your bill, your heating bills. Um, and then China's being attacked uh, for a number of things. But one of the big things that that Biden and and Blinken have been going on a rant about for, for months has been that that the BRI is spreading carbon dioxide and pollution and fossil fuels around the world. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> It's just it's just over the top. And then finally, the thing of that really caught my eye was uh, William Hague, the, the former defense secretary of the UK, just penned an article saying uh, the military under the new wisdom, the new the new ethic of uh, of the world as it as we as his masters see this ethic taking shape must be to use the military instead of defending oil, defending oil from nations trying to use uh, the oil. So. <laughs> The idea would be, in his mind, that under a Green New Deal world civilization that's decarbonizing by 2050, um, that all of the you know the militaries of the the enlightened parts of the world should be oh, stopping nations from accessing their their oil, which would just contribute to destroy us all if we let that happen. I want William Hague to take a pistol, put it into his mouth, and decarbonize himself. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they should go first. I mean, don't you agree, Matthew? I mean, I, I think that the politicians of the West, in the UK Parliament, in the District of Criminals here in Washington, D.C., and in Brussels, should all be gifted a 30 to maybe a 40 caliber round and then put it, uh, uh, you know, uh, directly into their mouths and decarbonize. Lead by example, gentlemen. Lead by example. Please decarbonize yourselves. Save us all the the trouble did that lose you? matthew did we lose your mic as well uh oh, you muted yourself oh there he goes okay his cam's back yeah his stream's back matt you gotta unmute hey, hey, yourself hey. 
Hey, hey, Matthew, if you want, hit the back button and, and then rejoin StreamYard altogether, if that will help. Yeah, but B, I completely agree with you um, as Matthew is regaining connection here. I mean, you know, um, you know, I, I heard that the uh, UN or whatever body is, is uh, wanting us to start eating like um, different type of protein, like uh, worms and, and other things insects. and getting away. Right. And meanwhile, these guys will continue <laughs> to eat uh, prime rib and filet mignon and ribs and chicken and all the other deliciousness. We're going to have fake pink meat. We're going to have uh, uh, plant-based foods because you got these idiot, vegan morons. Folks, human, humans are not vegans. It's the most stupidest thing in the world. There's never been a vegan civilization. If I dropped you in the jungle and you're vegan, you're going to be dead in 24 hours. The, the whole point <laughs> of what I'm trying to say is this. Okay? They are not only trying to de-industrialize you. They're trying to de-neutral. Uh, uh, they're, they're, they're trying to get rid of any sort of nutrients, any sort of vitality. They're trying to devitalize you as well. And this is the problem. And it's like the uh, the the professor, the, I forgot who it was, the professor over at Austin a couple of years ago who stood there during the, uh, I think, the first term of the Obama administration and literally in tears crying, oh, you know, humanity is a plague and we must, we must, uh, you know, stop all births. There has to be a global population reduction. Now, I sound like a Bill Clinton. For, uh, there has to be a global population reduction, kind of like what Bill Clinton was saying. But anyway, this guy was out there saying, this Austin professor, and he's crying, and the people up there are, are, are standing up and clapping, and I'm saying to myself, listening to this Austin idiot, saying, dude, if you're a professor in, in, in the University of Texas in Austin, and you're talking about, you know, there needs to be a population reduction, then follow by example, take a 40 caliber and eat it. Put it to your gun. <laughs> eat your own gun, dude. Put it in your mouth and blast yourself, and then go, do it. Lead by example. Lead by example. No, they won't do it. It's that Klaus Schwab. You will own nothing, and you will be happy. Okay, Klaus, show by example. Sell off your wealth, Sell off your billions of dollars in assets, sell it all off, give it to the poor, and you show me what that looks like, Klaus. Crickets. These people are sick. Mm -hmm. Good, man. Well, yeah, they, they, they really don't believe in, in any idea of morality whatsoever. They believe only in a, in a sort of practical morality, which is that there's one morality for the slaves and one morality for the, the elites. Yep. Um, and really, it's just an, an ethical convention that that's created to just moderate and and uh, stabilize society. Um, but there's no intrinsic value to the idea of justice in their minds or anything like that. It's it's all metaphysical garbage. In fact, in their minds, it's really just the you know what defines justice uh, is just the power of your will to impose itself onto the weaker. It's very much rooted in social Darwinism. Um, there's, there's nothing that they believe is intrinsic mor morally in the fabric, not only of the species of mankind, but also of the, of the universe. It's, it's not there. And then you compare that to like the type of thinking of Benjamin Franklin or the authors of the U S declaration of independence that saw that rights are inalienable, right? That, that we're, that we have equal rights because we're made in the image of a creator. And it's not because some sovereign bestowed you know, had a good day and chose to bestow and grant us rights that we have them. They're already there because we're human. So that that view that gave rise to the type of movement historically that broke the colony free of the British Empire, which is the first time that that had ever happened and created a new form of government back in 1776, 
um, you know, here I am in Canada. I, I look longingly upon that because we failed every time that challenge uh, came to our doorstep. We we took you the wrong choice. You have been captured, Matthew. You have been captured. Yeah, British, <laughs> British Canada, yeah, total slave colony. But at least you know, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of common heritage, except that at various points of choice, we took the wrong path. Um, so in the in it's it's a diametrically opposed paradigm that gave rise to that that we that people like Klaus Schwab. And and these other technocrats trying to rule over the the masses of basically their victims, they they're in total opposition to this as a historic force. And this goes back; you could see, um, you could see traces of this this battle going back thousands of years to the time of Plato in ancient Athens, um, working against the opposing schools that had been controlled by the cult of Delphi that ran the banks that were the at the time it was the treasuries. Uh, and and it's the same. It's the same thing. One school believed that human beings are just born into their stations, and that's their destiny, as well as the the kids and grandkids of the the slave is to be a slave, and the the masters. You know, you're you're hereditarily born into a better family, and so your your entire bloodline is the, thus guaranteed, um, based only on on blood, not no merit, right? No, no nothing of of competence or morality are, are associated with that formula. Um, wow, that, that that's a complete, and, and that's like a complete opposite of of Western elites as opposed to what you see with the uh, the ruling class in China, where it is meritocracy based, yeah. not on blood. Hence the rise of Xi Jinping. Yeah, no, very much so. Yeah, and and, and I mean, you couldn't get away with having like a, a George Bush character in a position of high office in China. It, it couldn't happen. You you the amount of work you have to do to to prove your competency, um, and and on, on so many levels, you have to be able to manage a municipality, manage a province, which in, in many cases in China, their provinces are bigger than, you know, the entire population of the United States. Um, and then there's, there's a whole selection process going on whereby the best of the best who have real understanding are brought into higher positions of, uh, of power. And they can be removed from that if they don't do their job, if they can't execute direct concrete tasks. And it's not simply about talking well or giving a good speech. Um, that's really a, become a, a corruption of the West. So, yeah, vital. But that's also why they're, they're going out of their way to just cut all and sever all ties with China. Like right now, the European Union, they're, they're also shooting themselves in the foot saying that they're going to they're going to renege and not follow through on their European China agreement, cooperation agreement. Um, that's now something that is being thrown up in smoke and you're thinking, well, why, why, are, you know, before my, my mic and my video cut off, um, I was just bringing up the, the different, um, uh, destruction of, uh, that that's being waged on the issue of, of fossil fuels. There's obviously an attack on fossil fuels, but at the same time, it seems like many, many of these companies like Shell, Chevron, Exxon Mobil are a part of, they're going along enthusiastically with uh, many elements of this this shutdown and decarbonization. Yep. The banks, you know, the the, the, the major lending, banks, absolutely, the lending, yeah, right, yeah, the, yeah, exactly. The, the major banks have signed central bankers climate compacts to prevent lending to companies that engage in uh, dirty activities like producing CO two. Um, the biggest corporations like Amazon, Apple, Microsoft have all signed on to decarbonization. Uh, compacts under Bezos, Zuckerberg, and whoever, Gates. So you're like, up until now, this is challenging for a lot of people who haven't made this mental leap. Because, 
and, and by that, I'm referring to all of the people who still believe that the world is just run by money and oil. And that's been a popular thing to cynically just say, oh yeah, wars, it's all wars for oil. Everything, the, the world turns around money. And it's like, there's something else. There's something else going on that you're missing if you think that. Because then you, if you think that, you can't account for why all of these nations are subverting themselves financially. They could be making so much more money working with China. They could be making so much more money developing their, their fossil fuels in a, in a common sense way. Um, or developing even better nuclear power. You but that would so threaten much- that would threaten the ruling class in the West because that would mean working yeah. with China, working with Russia in the multipolar world, that would enrich and enlarge the Western society's middle class. And they can't have that because their only competition comes from the middle class. Their only opposition comes from the middle class. Their only resistance yeah. comes from the middle class. And these psychopathic neo-feudalistic dictators will not have that no exactly exactly no and that's that's a vital point that you brought up because the the idea of a middle class this is a relatively new phenomenon as well right like before the industrial revolution there was no such thing really as a middle class you you were either you were born poor as a serf almost you know um you you worked the fields and maybe you sold cloth or something uh but your life was pretty much squalor or you, you were lucky enough to be born into an upper crust family. There was like a small managerial class of civil servants and things who, you know, were, were the closest thing to a middle class you could have, you could see, but it wasn't really that because they were all beholden in, entirely to the oligarchy. Um, so it's only with the industrial revolution that you started creating a division of labor. All of a sudden people were able to uh, have more sovereignty over their destiny and not be a part of this elite uh, class of hereditary power. Um, people like Ben Franklin, you know, who I brushed upon earlier, he wasn't from an elite family. He was, you know, from a poor family, but he had a sense of of industry. He had opportunity that not only was he grant was he did he find, but he created opportunities for himself and others by his creativity. Uh, you couldn't get that in in the old Europe. You th- things were too encrusted and and uh, crystallized corruption wise in the old system in Europe. You could only get that in the new world, that type of environment to creatively create new conditions. So that's what the oligarchy, for sure, they're totally afraid of that. And especially after World War II, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of, of having a world that would have uh, no hunger, no starvation, no war, the way Franklin Delano Roosevelt had made his, his four, uh, four freedoms, a, a governing principle of the Atlantic Charter, of what he intended for the the Bretton Woods to become. That was a real thing. It wasn't just idealized philosophy for a lot of people who just beat, you know, fascism. And they were coming back from having nearly, you know, died in World War II back to their home countries. And the idea was to carry forth the dream of Franklin Roosevelt, who who had negotiated meetings with leaders from all sorts of countries, from India and South America and the Middle East, Iran, uh, to help them help all these countries develop full spectrum economies and industry using America's military production capabilities. But instead of using it for war to use it for, it was called the arsenal of democracy. Now that, that idea again, scared the hell out of the oligarchy that had been losing its grip on the system. You know, their, their Hitler monster, their, their Frankenstein monster blew up in their face. So that really crippled and, and upset their plans that had been put into motion uh, quite some time before Hitler arose, this was, you know, you could say even the League of Nations 
was the was the first modern attempt at a new global British uh, empire under world government in 1919. And they had already set the stage for World War II back in 1919, way before World War II happened. Their idea was to just use to to use fascism as a new type of enforcement agency to break the will of nations of the world and then get these fascist um, front men to be their puppet dictators on behalf of the city of London and, you know, the other elites of the old system. So that didn't work out. Hitler didn't want to obey some of those rules, some of those commands, and he went in a certain way a renegade uh, by listening to his generals instead of the city of London. And uh, and they were losing a lot of their power. So by 1945, when Roosevelt dies, Britain is very weak and they have to work very hard to reorganize themselves in opposition to this new age of republics, an, an, an era of sovereign republics working on big projects together. Um, that was the, you know, the hope of, of all mankind, even back in 1776. Benjamin Franklin had this vision already back then. So it's a long it's a long fight. Now, that's what I want to kind of get at here, because I mentioned before, people who believe that the world runs by money and oil today, they're totally confused. I was listening to Russell Brand. I like Russell Brand. He's a funny guy, but he's... Crikey, uh, man. He, he's, he's kind of funny. <laughs> he's super, like, super What funny. would happen if, like, you know, the oil palace... Okay. Well, and, and real quick, too, and just in, in Matthew, in regards to Nazism and so forth, is that you know, let's you know. In, in fairness, I think there, that you know, selected parts of Nazism were kind of picked apart and exported to different parts of of, of the world, including here in the United States. Operation Paperclip. Ben we yes, exactly. And and, 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 and you know, right <laughs> after nine eleven, Matt, uh, who did we invite over here to form the the rudiments of the Patriot Act and the Department of Homeland Security? Was it not Marcus Wolf, the famous Stasi general? I didn't know that. Yeah, it was it was Stasi General Marcus Wolf, who hmm. came and who 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 created the backbone of what what would become Homeland Security. So you had somebody who was a former East German Stasi, a head of the Stasi, who came here and developed Homeland Security for the United States. I mean, dude, the penchant that these rulers have for tyrants and tyrannical methods is incredible, Matt. Go ahead. Absolutely. Well, you know, the the uh, the individual who was set up by Alan Dulles in uh, Germany to run the East German uh, intelligence after uh, or no, sorry, West German, West German intelligence in 1947 um, was the figure was actually Hitler's intelligence um, commander. The, the guy who was who ran Nazi intelligence was the guy that Alan Dulles recruited and then put back into Correct. position of power. Uh, after World War II was over in Germany. Um, and there were recent documents that were made, they were declassified in 1998, that it was something like 2 million documents were, were declassified going through the extent of Hitler's uh, intelligence network that were uh, commandeered by the CIA and MI6 during the Cold War and uh, used against the Soviet Union. So the whole thing, I mean, there's so much of our history that we're not told. And, and yeah, I see that you just pulled up uh, my recent article from uh, this Victory Day. So and, and that's the question I try to pose is that, you know, for Victory Day, which was May 9th, isn't it about time we, we think about winning World War II? Basically that, you know, if, if the same financiers who and industrialists like, you know, the Standard Oil interests, the Rockefeller interests, the City of London Morgan interests 
and uh, and Montague Norman interests, if they were the, all of the the primary backers of eugenics, the science of racial sterilization of the of the system, um, and and the rise of of Mussolini and Franco and Nazism, if they were all the the agencies that made that happen, and none of them were punished after World War II, but in fact reorganized and got more power in the ensuing seven decades, could it be said that the Allies actually won World War II? And right there is a picture of 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 Hjalmar Schacht with obviously his boss, and the character to the right is Prescott Bush, and that you know uh, Prescott Bush American is the guy. Patriot. Yeah, right. This guy was a senator. He ran uh, Union Banking, um, which was directly doing business with uh, Fritz Thiessen, with the Nazi yep. machine, all the way up until yep. 1942, until his Brown estate. Brothers of, Brown Brothers Harriman were yeah, di- he was directly part of that. Um, and that's just one of many. And this is the guy that gave, you know, that created a complete dynasty that he was rewarded for because yeah. basically for he didn't himself become president, but he was guaranteed uh, by his masters that you've done such a good job that we're going to allow you to have a little mini dynasty. Um, and, he, you know, his son became the head of the CIA. He created two presidents, nearly created a third Jeb Bush president if, if Trump God, hadn't uh, destroyed that uh, operation. So yeah, there, there's a complete history there that we're not told about for obvious reasons. And when you look at today, okay, so what do you have? And I, for the second half of today's show, I just wanted to really uh, unpack a little bit of the thinking behind the fourth industrial revolution. So people often hear people like Klaus Schwab talking about the fourth industrial revolution, which is going to replace the fossil fuel industrial economy that we've had now for supposedly the last 70 years. Um, So this is the the theme of the upcoming uh, COP27 summit in the UK. It's what Biden is committed to. But what is the fourth industrial revolution? And essentially, it's just AI automation. So, you know, the concept is we've had a few different stages of industrial revolution since the 17th century and the use of, of the steam engine. Um, and, and mills and things of that sort. Now we're entering, we, we're, we've been in the, the electronics computer age, the third industrial rev- revolution for some time. And now we're entering uh, a, new, a new one where we're told uh, a new phase of human evolution is, is occurring. A artificial intelligence, machine learning are going to increasingly just com- take over uh, the things that we used to do as human beings. Human beings are going to become more irrelevant and automation run by AI is going to do most things. We already see a lot of this creeping up into military systems planning, things like Pathfinder for the Arctic um, and many other things that are that are defining uh, the US military uh, battle plans in the Pacific and around Russia's perimeter. These are being highly infested with machine learning theories. Um, and yeah, some of this is not, I mean, intrinsically terrible. I'm, I'm not against automation in any way. I think it's a great thing that human beings can be liberated from physical burdens in order to use their minds more. That's great. But, you know, people like Yuval Hariri, the WEF, uh, World Economic Forum uh, ideologue, they love this guy. Um, you know, he's among those who say, or Elon Musk, even frankly, um, who has a different take on the same thing with his Neuralink, is that uh, ultimately we're going to, we're entering a new age of the useless class that now with the machines doing everything, all of the, you know, 50, 40, 50 year old truck drivers, machinists, uh, they could either become yoga, yoga teachers or something, but they're probably not going to do that. So 
they're hey, they're man, now part I, of the. I, I want to be class. a yoga teacher. <laughs> well, you, there's a place for you in the in the new society, I guess. I can't wait. <laughs> But, but you can see, like, how many yoga teachers do we need, right? Like, like so the, these people are really kind of looking at the problem of this new useless class. Um, and Elon Musk is saying, well, with his Neuralink, which also, might I add, uh, Jeff Bezos is a part of, Zuckerberg is a big investor in this whole Neuralink thing, that human beings have to merge with machines in order to stay relevant. Uh, otherwise, crazy. there will be an obvious like Terminator, Terminator three battle with machines, um, or matrix, right? Um, that's our inevitable destiny is to go to war with the machines that way. And the only way and to, that's the uh, stupidity of this whole entire thing. If you notice, right, these yeah. guys tend to overhype everything, right? Check this out. First, it was, uh, uh um, uh, it, the world's going to freeze over. It's going to be an ice age. They hype it, hype that up to, to oblivion. Then it was global warming. The world's going to burn up and die. Now it's climate change. They, they, then these are look here's the thing about the west okay they're criminals they're criminals with fanciful tales mm -hmm. and what that what i mean by that is this okay they lie to you and they they exponentially uh you know aggrandize these existential threats that are going to wipe out humanity and it's going to end your life and all this other stuff and it's yeah. fanciful fairy tales made up in think tanks of, with lowbrow people Mm -hmm. There's never going to be a damn AI ever, ever. Why? Because the AI is complicit to the will of its programmer. It's what yeah. it is, man. Right? Yeah. There's never going no, to be Skynet exactly. going software and all that other bullshit. It's marketing in Hollywood, and they use these cultural connotations and this pop culture uh, ubiquitous thought in order to get into your minds that this is what's going to be happening. Either you merge with the machines, and who controls the machines? They do. Merge with the machines, otherwise you're going to be irrelevant. Or you don't want to go to war with the Terminators. You don't want to have that happen one day. Go ahead, Matt. This is crazy, these psychopaths. No, exactly. They're control freaks, and they're hiding behind... They hide behind uh, mechanisms that they create that don't really exist so that we can't see what they actually want to do. Because if, if we just saw with a clear mind what was actually shaping the system that we are born into in our living, we would do something about it. It we would be horrified, disgusted, and we would organize appropriately in opposition to, a, you know, let's say there's a mass kill or a mass culling of the herd. If that's an intention, we would do something. So they say, oh, look, the, nature is just organized by complexity. There's this infinite wall of randomness and complexity that self-organizes. And uh, don't worry about it. That's just the way things are. That's the way it, are. it is in nature. The planetary orbits are just the way they are because that's just that how the dust cloud originally formed randomly around a sun that's just randomly there with no purpose. And it just we got lucky that we're on one of these like third rocks from the sun that happened to be conducive to life. And so life just randomly happened. Don't talk about how that happened because like, you know, electricity just hit some, you know, uh, chemicals floating around in some ooze and then luck, like life happened and then just it that's happened it. to luckily just unfold the way it does. From yes. simple celled amoebas all the way to like, you know, walking organisms that can eventually develop conscious conscious reasoning. It's all luck. Contra contrary contrary to the law of, of entropy. Contrary to the law of entropy. Always contrary. And so if they if they admit that there is some non-entropic process, they'll say, oh, that's just an isolated case of non-entropy in an otherwise dead dying universe. For those who don't know, entropy is simply the idea that there is an an, an that you're that all systems 
that are entropic are closed because they're closed. There is a limited amount of energy to sustain the, the, the mechanisms within the system. Let's say you're dealing with a, a, a fuel in a gas tank in your car. That's an, that's a good example of an entropic system. You put the fuel in the, the pistons move, there's burning happening. It gets action happening for the car, but it's always running down to a point of no action, right? As, as there's only so much oil in there and it's not going to create more oil, um, as it's burning. So, They'll say, okay, animal life evolution is not like that, but ultimately it's the, it's, it's an isolated case that will ultimately be extinguished by the heat death of the universe, which is like that is what they'll say. Because every time you have more, more living matter, that's more energy being consumed by the processes of life that don't, that are no longer distributed in the universe. And that thus ultimately life is life itself. The non-entropic life is ultimately tied to the the death of the universe we're accelerating the the death of the universe that would happen anyway but we're just making it faster and human life which which creates i mean we went from like a billion of our species living 150 years ago to what 8 billion almost 9 billion soon uh in a very short period that's a lot of new living human matter that's supported by industrial agro-industrial activity that's that's accelerating the heat death even faster by sucking parasitically the the vital limited energy from the universe into our greedy greedy needs and so to be good and in, in, in harmony with the universe we should just depopulate and like the great reset you know there's a website run by a bunch of advertising uh executives they try to make it sound like gra uh, glass uh, grassroots it's called uh it, it's like for hipsters it's, it's the great reset for hipsters and you look at this website and they say how great is it that under covid lockdown human CO2 production went down 7%, but, but they say in order to meet, uh, the, the Paris climate accords, we have to keep doing this every year for the next 20 years. Um, so we have to act for the next 20 years as if we are in lockdown to, because that, you know, that, that's how we're going to save the world from, from burning under uh, human caused uh, global warming bullshit. There's nothing like you said behind this scientifically, but they just repeat it and they try to make it look cool for hipsters or something. Um, so what is, what is behind the, the, this fourth industrial revolution is an idea that goes back to, um, well, here, actually, you know what? There, there's several points on this that I, I want to share, but I figured there's, there's three organizations run by three people uh, with three quotes that I want to just share very quickly yeah. because it's sometimes just reading a quote, a statement of intention by somebody uh, drives the point home more than a lot of description could do. So um, I'm just doing a share screen. And the first organization, they, I mentioned that the British were trying to reorganize the, their empire after World War II. You guys can see what, I, what I'm seeing? Yes, it's yes. On, on screen. Okay, now my quote is very small. I'm sorry for that. This is a guy named uh, G. Brock Chrisholm. He was a, uh, a Canadian psychiatrist. Um, he worked at London's Tavistock Clinic in the 1920s, and Chris Holm becomes the founder, the first secretary general of the World Health Organization. The World Health Organization grew out of the League of Nations Health Organization, which had basically petered out, wasn't worth anything by the end of World War II. The, the League of Nations was a failed project, and that was a world government project to get rid of nation states uh, completely from 1919 when it was created. So what they wanted to do is to take control of these organizations that Franklin Roosevelt and his collaborators had created in 1945, 46, 
like the UN, like the the IMF, the World Bank, and other things, and then subvert them, take them, and and use them to reconquer the the colonies of the world, including the USA. So Chris Holm, um, I mentioned he worked with with at, at Tavistock. He was a a real psychopath, and in one of his original statements, uh, his speeches when the World Health Organization is being set up in 1940, I think 46 or 47. Uh, he literally says, to achieve world government, it is necessary to remove from the minds of men their individualism, loyalty to family traditions, national patriotism, and religious dogmas. This guy has a lot of quotes like this, but that's just one clear one where the point is always get rid of nation state, get rid of the idea of our traditions, our past, and create a blank slate for humanity. One of the things that was being done in, in uh, Tavistock in the 1920s in London was work on, on shell shock. How do, you, how do you deal with the psychological uh, states of soldiers that had seen things you should never see in life uh, who had dismantled their personalities through shell shock? And, and how, was it, how was it the case that their malleability, their, their loss of confidence in their own wisdom or judgment or identities which accompanied shell shock, how could that be reproduced in schoolrooms, in governments more broadly, which is always the question, how do you apply this to group psychology? Um, one of the guys he worked with who ran Tavistock throughout much of this period uh, was Brigadier General John Rawlings Reese. That's a picture of the guy smoking a pipe. Now, Rawlings Reese goes on to co-found the World Federation of Mental Health in 1948 um, as a branch of the World Health Organization. So this guy, uh, one of the quotes, again, many ugly quotes, he basically says, we can therefore justifiably stress our particular point of view with regards to the proper development of the human psyche, even though our knowledge be incomplete. We must aim to make uh, it permeate every educational activity in, of, in our national life. We have made a useful attack upon a number of professions, the two easiest of them naturally are the teaching profession and the church. The two most difficult are law and medicine. This is a 1940 speech um, on strategic planning for mental health. Um, there, he's already thinking about the post-war uh, era. And he's the guy who's calling for um, psychological, psych psychiatric shock, shock troops to be set up in government planning institutions, in, a te in technocracies all over the world to modify human feelings, thought, and behavior. Um, so he's a, a very strong behaviorist. Um, so this guy sets up the World Federation of Mental Health along with his cohort, um, Chris Holm. Third guy runs UNESCO. So the United Nations Education, Science, and Cultural Organization. All three of them are thinking education. How do you uh, cleanse society by focusing your efforts on the young, the people who are the children of the veterans of World War II, um, who are going to be the most malleable and subject to the, the conditioning you want to bring into being that will make them malleable tools. Basically, today's baby boomer generation who went through a lot of conditioning under the LSD culture and other things that they were subjected to in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, Julian Huxley says the moral for UNESCO, and this is in its purpose and philosophy, its founding document, the manifesto, um, is clear. The task laid upon it of promoting peace and security can never be wholly realized through the means assigned to it, education, science, and culture. 
it must envision some form of world political unity, whether through a single world government or otherwise, as the only certain means of avoiding war. In its educational program, it can stress the ultimate need for a world political unity and familiarize all peoples with the implications of the transfer of full sovereignty from separate nations to a world organization. Now, you could say, but okay, the UN, that's what it's all about. Not at all. The, the United Nations was, was, was a, created, and you could read the charter of the UN. It was created with the idea of national sovereignty enshrined in the charter. So unlike the League of Nations, which was a British imperial concoction, uh, which that was based on the abolishment of national sovereignty, the United Nations was always just based on the preservation of national sovereignty. It was supposed to be a, 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 an area where people could work through their differences and plan economic development together. It was never meant to be an enforcement body. So people like Julian Huxley, Sir Julian Huxley, Brigadier General Rawlings Reese and others, one thing about them is that they didn't believe that. They wanted to revive the League of Nations principle, but also eugenics, because all of them were big promoters of eugenics, the science of racial uh, purification and the cleansing of the human gene pool. The idea of eugenics was essentially taking Darwinian evolution into our own hands consciously and organizing our species into the next phase of evolution. This is directly what plays into the thinking of the fourth industrial revolution where human beings have to merge somehow with machines to be relevant for, you know, and, and it's really playing God. One of the things that, that I, I selected a second quote from Huxley, same document, UNESCO purpose and philosophy, where he makes it clear. He says, at the moment, it is probable that the indirect effect of civilization is dysgenic instead of eugenic, dysgenic meaning to get worse, but dumb people are, are procreating. Uh, eugenic is to get better. And in any case, it seems likely that the dead weight of genetic stupidity, physical weakness, mental instability, and disease proneness, which already exist in the human species, will prove too great a burden for real progress to be achieved. Thus, even though it is quite true that any radical eugenic policy will be for many years politically and psychologically impossible, it will be important for UNESCO to see that the eugenic problem is examined with the greatest care and that the public mind is informed of the issues at stake so that much that is now unthinkable may at least become thinkable. So I'm just going to stop the sharing right there. But let that sink in, right? Because this is a guy, what does he go and do? And I know we've spoken about this a couple of weeks ago, but just to really drive this home. And this this gets at also uh, the the anomaly of ExxonMobil, uh, the Rockefeller oil interests, uh, Shell, Dutch, all of these things that are going for a decarbonization policy. They're without without any fight. They're actually promoting it. It's, it's not a discrepancy. So when you look at what did Julian Huxley do next, he co-founds the World uh, Wildlife Fund in 1961 with who? Prince Bernhard and Prince Philip. Bilderberg. Right, 1960. Bilderberger founder, right? Prince Bernhard. Um, he creates the, the International Conservation Trust in 1947, the first... A movement to try to create an ethic of conservation instead of production, uh, of preserving nature from human civilization. Um, he creates transhumanism, the underlying philosophy of the idea of the genetic modification of the species with things like CRISPR, uh, which Rhodes Scholar, what's his name, Eric Lander, the current science czar of the United States under under Biden. Um, this is what he, as the the lead geneticist from Oxford. Uh, was all about with the Human Genome Project that he ran. 
it, it's the idea is to permanently uh, manipulate the human genome forever for the, at the behest of this brave new world class, right? Um, so that's Julian Huxley who creates transhumanism as a term and a philosophy. Now, all three organizations together, UNESCO, World Health Organization, and the, um, the uh, World Federation of Mental Health, all three of them work together, funded by the, the Macy Foundation, which is a big eugenics sponsoring organization that was created by uh, the funds of jo Josiah Macy, who himself created like an, an oil industry in the 19th century that became quickly absorbed by the Rockefeller Standard Oil uh, Trust in the 1890s. Uh, so it's really just the Rockefeller front. Um, but the Macy Foundation was created to fund health, like it's an NGO, kind of like a trust that was funding health science, but it was all eugenics throughout the 1930s and 40s. This Macy Foundation with these other organizations whose leaders we just read quotes of goes on to fund a series of conferences called the Macy Foundation Conferences from 1942 to 1953 on cybernetics. And this is what then creates, I mean, they, they, they pick an, an, an acolyte of Bertrand Russell, a guy named Norbert Wiener, who is a, a young child genius back in the 1910s. You know, and he becomes a disciple studying at uh, Cambridge under directly under Bertrand Russell as part of his little uh, coterie of, of young, brilliant uh, misanthropes. And Bertrand Russell had already, and people probably know the name Bertrand Russell. This guy is a grand strategist for the empire. He's a, a one of the leading controllers of grand strategy throughout the, the 20th century. What this guy does is cr he creates a project in 1900. So at, at the same time that you have this burst of Abraham Lincoln's policies going international with 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 Otto von Bismarck's Germany creating the Zollverein, rail and development across Russia. Um, same things happen are occurring across the Meiji Restoration of Japan. Is is an anti-imperial development strategy of sovereign nations working together for big projects to define a new ethic of win-win cooperation that's more in harmony with human nature than anything we'd ever seen, and that was what was defining the end of the 19th century. So, and I'm jumping back and forth here, but people need to hold all of this in their mind if they want to get a unity of, of thought of, of what is causing our, our problems. What are the solutions? They have to have this. So <clears throat> Bertrand Russell creates a project in 1900 with David Hilbert. And the project is to, 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 to create a unification of sciences, which includes biology, chemistry, physics, math, uh, political science, sociology, psychology, and to, to create an internally consistent ideology of the master class of the, of the British Empire to gain control of the world. And he does this in a, in a Future of Mathematics conference where the challenge is laid by, by Bertrand Russell and Hilbert in Göttingen to try to mathematize the entire universe into a, a limited amount of assumptions that you could re reduce everything to. So to basically make it a closed entropic system. And then find ways of organizing new theories of, of political economy, psychology, and uh, philosophy to, to apply it to actually get the human species into that cage and thus prevent them from going down the path of what Abraham Lincoln or at the time William McKinley, who had just been assassinated, were trying to get the world to go to, which is, again, world of cooperating sovereign nation states. Very different. So that's what they had to stop. Bertrand Russell... Uh, he gets, he acquires this young, this young boy who's like this world genius named Norbert Wiener of mathematics. He's, he's on the cover of all sorts of magazines as like this young prodigy. 
His yeah. father, unfortunately, hands him over to Bertrand Russell, um, who he works under for a year with David Hilbert, is, is his other professor. And he is given the challenge to, to find ways to carry this out. He becomes the founder of um, automation. automation, systems analysis, and cybernetics. The he does this because he, at the time in World War II, he's in charge of trying to figure out ways of um, of shooting of 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 making radar better that allows people to shoot down missiles or planes. Um, one of the problems that are being encountered at the time is is information. How do you get once you once your your machine has using the radar acquires the velocity and position of a of a plane? It takes time for that information to arrive back to the person. Uh, controlling the radar and time for them to plug in a response such that that plane is now in a totally different place. So how do you maximize that feedback loop is what he's looking at. It's all about feedback. Um, and ultimately he comes out of this with a whole theory of Bertrand, basically a Eureka in his mind of how do you unify everything around information, a closed system. And the Macy Foundation, starting in 1942, I'm going to re, I'm I'm going to be publishing a paper on this next week, uh, which goes through a lot of the details of, of this. But basically, in short in short form, um, <clears throat> they then are providing the the money, and they're saying, okay, let's get together people from every field of of science into these Macy conferences to figure out how do they apply cybernetics. Now, cybernetics as a name that he gave it is is a it's rooted in a Greek term for helmsman. Um, so the idea is you don't, you using, for example, um, they use the example of a, of a machine as the same thing as a human nervous system and all parts of the machine, let's say you're of, of let's say a human being with a brain and, an, and a central nervous system, your parts don't have to know what everything is doing. My hand, you know, only doesn't, have any internal knowledge unto itself, it's all being controlled by one point of control in my mind. So they're saying, okay, a human government, if you want to control a government or a, a, a classroom or a, a bureaucracy or a military, you, you could apply this by having a high compartmentalize the system into like specialized cogs of machines. So every department has their own specialization. No department in a government can see or understand what the other departments are really doing in a serious way, such that only a small group, maybe two or three people with a small executive are in the helmsman position, right? If you're, if you're rowing a boat, you got like 80 people rowing the boat and maybe a few white, you know, mopping the deck. They don't have to know the, the science of, na of navigation. Only the navigator needs to know that. So this becomes something which People like Brock Chrisholm, Julian Huxley, Bertrand Russell, who's unfortunately living for a very long time, they're all <laughs> drooling over this um, and, and figuring out ways to apply it to these different fields. And another name for this becomes systems analysis, that everything is a system, but, you're, but the systems are always closed entropic systems. Because they're closed, they must be entropic. Because they're entropic, if you have human beings in them, it means that you always have to focus on mathematical equilibrium. That's why they're, they're trying to mathematize everything. The problem here is that it was refuted in 1932, this whole system of Bertrand Russell that he, he, he applied in his uh, Principia Mathematica three volume series with Alfred North Whitehead. It was totally destroyed by Einstein's buddy, um, Kurt Gödel. And Gödel basically said, okay, 
he's like this humble, humble young mathematician, but he's moral. He's a follower of Leibniz. And he he's like, there's something wrong here um, with, with Bertrand Russell's idea of trying to, you know, create a closed universe. And he basically proves in a very short, dense way that no, anytime you have a closed system that's, that's self-bounded, there's always something outside of the system that must exist. Correct. By virtue, and he used the example of a self-referential thing, like to say, uh, I, I am lying. As soon as I say I am lying, well, am I telling you the truth or am I lying, right? So all of a sudden that breaks down the entire logic that might be contained within the system because it, it both answers, neither, neither one equates. So it's like a glitch. And these guys in Tavistock are looking at, it, so so this is destroyed, and, and Bertrand Russell is enraged. He's embarrassed, um, and he never forgives Girdle for this. Girdle actually ends up dying in 1972 by self-starvation because Girdle is is persu- is convinced, maybe rightfully so, that Bertrand Russell is running a conspiracy to destroy science and is trying to poison him. Oh yeah, that's uh, that's actually how he dies. And his his wife, you know, he'll only accept food being prepared by his wife, and his wife gets sick, goes to the hospital for a few days, and unfortunately no one is there to, to feed him and he dies. So that's sad. But all that to say, Bertrand Russell, he was probably partially right in some of that, but all that to say, so Bertrand Russell's theory is destroyed, but despite that, the application of his theory in the form of systems analysis that goes on to create and generate the political economy system of the great reset that all underlies this is there. And people like in Tavistock, they're looking at feedback. They got a whole theory of how, um, um, Shock therapy is caused by feedback overload, um, which which you know prevents people from from growing as a person. But they're they're looking at all of these things of feedback information as and they're trying to find ways of how do you wipe the hard drive of people and of nations? How do you wipe the hard drive and then create a new uh, hard drive through imposing shock into the system? And and it's all programming, right? It's all they they they, they themselves are persuaded perhaps in some ways that um, human beings can be replaced by machines, but only because they think like machines. If you actually thought like a human being, a creative person like Kurt Gödel or Einstein or Max Planck, um, it, it, none of this would work. So the, the lucky thing in all of this is that human beings, as people like Putin, Xi Jinping are aware, are not a closed but rather an open system that we're part yep. of the universe and the universe by all evidence is an open, creative living universe. It is not a dead, dying heat death of a universe. Anybody who thinks that is really just a dupe for a nihilist uh, Satanist. Unfortunately, you just said it straight up, but yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> the universe is actually living good news. Um, mm-hmm. We're told that, that things are, are slowly, you know, eeping down to a, a heat death of nothingness. There's no evidence really backing that up. And the evidence that we are given in terms of like the, that's a whole other probably discussion for us, but it's, it's, it's fake evidence. It's not real. Um, <clears throat> so by developing human economy and shaping it around large scale projects that invoke human creative thought by elevating people out of poverty where they, where they can start using their minds um, instead of just being beasts of the field, that's something that is uniquely today coming out of the Belt and Road, the multipolar alliance and that approach. There's problems going on in all parts of the world, including China. I'm not saying that it's all perfect. However, that's the orientation. That's the sort of thing that we had seen coming out of Franklin Roosevelt's orientation that he intended the post-war world to be based upon. That's the same orientation we had seen coming out of the Civil War, where Lincoln's followers intended for and fought for this type of win-win 
open system world of cooperation around things like the Bering Strait Rail Tunnel to be a defining character of a new world of cooperation. Um, under that, if that hadn't been sabotaged with assassinations, color revolutions in Russia and world wars, you could say we could probably already have been uh, colonizing Mars for the past 80 years, probably, but we've been held yeah. back. And these assholes uh, who are just under a religion of eugenics and misanthropy are com completely committed to getting humanity back into the little cage they want us to live in and then they, so that they could make the cage smaller under this brave new world dystopia. So it's, it's really, those are the conditions of the current clash of paradigms. And I wanted people really just to have an appreciation for that. And I'll send out um, my article when it's done, that'll go through a lot more detail that people can internalize and communicate, like learn how do you teach this, communicate some of these core ideas uh, to other people, because we have to be better communicators and teachers, not just uh, consumers of information, the way right. Norbert Wiener thinks of human beings and information as consumers, no producers. Very well said. Matthew, that was epic, my man. Epic. And folks, if you missed this broadcast, you can re-listen to it. But also, most importantly, get over to the Substack. Get over to Matthew's site. Subscribe. Support. Uh, we need information like this to start breaking through the obsolete binary thinking that many of us in the West have been completely been – our minds have been calcified by it. We need a breakthrough. And it's information like this that, that breaks you through. It's invaluable. So I ask all of you that are listening in right now on all the platforms, on seven or eight platforms that this broadcast is going out under, uh, go to the Substack. Go to his websites. The links are all in the description box. Support him monetarily. Support him with your time. Support him with the talent. Support him with the treasure. Um, because we're all in this fight together. We're all in this fight together. And I'll tell you right now, Information like this is invaluable as we are reaching the, the, the zenith, the epoch of the collapse and unraveling of Western civilization. Matt, any mm -hmm. uh, last words you want to say? Yeah, and I would just say um, <clears throat> that what we, with my wife Cynthia and I, as I've said, I, I like plugging this at the, at the end of our little conversations, but every Sunday uh, we organize weekly symposia. Um, featuring different topics on science, on statecraft, on history. This last week was on Plato and Confucius, um, two kindred spirits at two ends of the, the, the world island. It's a wonderful class that's available on our, our website, uh, risingtidefoundation.net. And next week, it's going to be Cynthia going through uh, the geopolitics of Plato's fight. So what was the geopolitical environment around which Plato uh, found himself on the world stage and how did he operate to create a real philosopher king on several occasions in opposition to um, very evil forces that we're currently still dealing with. So every week we do this, I usually re request that people uh, make a donation monthly or individual. It could go as little as a dollar or two a, a month. Uh, if you don't have funds, that's really okay. You'll still get the, the invitation to be a part of the, the weekly lectures. It uh, Just send an email to info at risingtidefoundation.net if you do want to receive the uh, the Zoom invitations. And um, yeah, we just look forward to having more people learning together and communicating what they learn to others because we need to make this popular, like this process of learning and taking our, our education into our own hands. It's got to be made more popular fast. So hopefully people do that. And I uh, just wanted to throw that and pitch that out there. Very well said. 
And with that, folks, we're at the end of the broadcast again. Check out the links uh, and check out his work. We love it here. We love having Matt um, alive here. I mean, live here. I hope so. Live. Live. (laughs) (laughs) Live here on Rogue. And with that being said, CJ, take it away.